so what I'm talking about, when Rob was speaking to me a couple of uh, he, I, I said, what do you want me to, what do you want me to share? Because I always do that wherever I go, because some churches want me to share on a particular theme. And uh, he just simply said, what's on your heart? So that didn't take much. The trouble is, what's on my heart? I take conferences on in other places. Um, <laughs> but I will abbreviate it because I feel that both the, a lot of, all over the world, people are saying, what's the church going to look like post-pandemic? Even the conference in Ukraine, they'd entitled it Rebooting the Church Post-Pandemic. Okay, so everybody's asking the same questions. People all over having the same things. Is everybody coming back to actually meet in person now or not? And all those sort of things. Lots of questions are being asked. Should we be meeting more in groups? Are they more effective? Um, and, or should we do more online? Is that the future? And all this sort of And with all those questions, which everyone's asking, there's three dangers. Firstly, we decide too early rather than waiting for real direction on it. I mean, in, in this country even, there are some churches now that have closed all their meetings and they're just doing small groups or online. So please, it's very important we take our time. Any form of change always takes time in the church. And if you do it too quickly, it usually doesn't help anyone. Secondly, biblical values are to govern our response, not current trends. How you express those biblical values will change from generation to generation and culture to culture. But that's what governs us, not the trend. Third danger is forgetting that contextualization is very, very important and different application in different settings according to the context of the uh, church concerned. So what I do believe is that we should ask, what is God saying and what have we missed from Scripture that should be restored to the church? And so what I'm speaking on is neglected truths. These are truths that you all believe but have not been so well uh, put into practice as they really should be. And that's what I'm going to talk about. But I'm going to read a scripture first from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. Well-known scripture, but let me just uh, um, uh, speak about this a little bit and then apply it to a number of areas. Firstly, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of Heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Well, so what's, this, what's Jesus saying in here? Remember, the people he was talking to had an expectation 
that the kingdom of God would be a dramatic incoming of the Messiah who would uh, set up a new government which would overthrow all the Romans and other occupying powers and demonstrate that they are top nation. And it was going to be a very public thing. Jesus kept saying things like this. The kingdom of heaven is like the smallest seed you can possibly imagine. So it was undermining their whole worldview and expectation. But the point of these two parables is the contrast between the smallness and apparent insignificance of the mustard seed and leaven. Leaven um, is using, it's yeast, but it's using the previous loaf to take a little bit of and make the next one. Okay, like you do with sourdough. I watch my wife do that regularly. Okay, so um, it's, and so the contrast between the insignificance and smallness of the mustard seed and leaven and the largeness of the end result. Okay, and God's kingdom is always like that. You don't, you don't, it it isn't different. It isn't suddenly, this is this massive, great public until Jesus returns. That's when the kingdom will be public in that sense. Until that time, it is tiny. Your contribution is tiny. What your church can do is tiny, but it contributes to the gospel going to every nation on earth and the kingdom of God being demonstrated and experienced everywhere. That's what these are teaching. And this, he was in, Matthew would have been, heard Jesus teaching his disciples to have confidence in telling and living this apparently little message which will transform the world. Smallness and yet growth is always the way the kingdom works. Commentator Matthew Henry put it like this. A grain of mustard seed is small. However, it is seed and it has a disposition to grow. Seed always grows. Well, most seeds do. Okay, I know. You sometimes have to, well, Jesus told parables about that as well. Sometimes you have to sow more seeds to get the real growth from some. And this is consistent with Matthew's message throughout his gospel. So, a tiny baby worshipped by despised shepherds and Gentile magi, astrologers. That's who, that's all who was there. The African Bible commentary describes it as, by the way, it's good to read commentaries, non-Western. Okay, I've learned that. Similarly, we must recognize that just as great rivers have a very small source, so great movements in history often start in a single moment with an obscure thought, word, or action. By the way, prophecies often like that. Okay, I'll come back to that. A young woman bears her firstborn son in the backwater of a mighty empire and names him Jesus. You see, that's the whole history of Christianity. It was just the seed. And then later when there was a healing revival among the crowds, because Jesus blessed the crowds, and that's an example to us, he suddenly walks away up a mountain. 
to train his disciples, his embryonic church, this seemingly inadequate group who would be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We must get the right balance, as Jesus did supremely, between serving crowds, blessing our communities, and uh, making disciples who will multiply for the future. That's what Jesus did. Often we don't. And even then, the instruction started with the grace of God's blessing, not on the successful, not on the powerful, but the crushed in spirit. The poor in spirit. Those who mourn, but hunger and long for righteousness and justice, but seemingly can't do anything about it. The small, despised and persecuted are the light of the world. And these parables tell the same message. Mustard seed means that though our contribution is always small, yet it represents, that it reaches the nation. But it says the birds of the air come. You know, when you're an oppressed people, you have to talk in code. Okay? I've come across that in lots of places I go to. So you talk in code. And they had code for the Romans and the Gentiles that were oppressing them. And they called them the birds of the air. Right? The Herodians, they called foxes. Which you remember Jesus said, go tell that fox. And oppressed people find those ways. And this is meaning the birds of the air representing the uh, nations of the world that uh, we are reaching through our seeds. Even the reference to a mustard bush was irony. We often miss the humor of the New Testament. But Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, prophesied about something, that were a, a tree where the birds of the air and the uh, animals of the field would rest. And he said, it's going to be a great cedar. And then Jesus applied that scripture and says, it's just a mustard tree bush. You understand? Doesn't look anything, even though it's the biggest. And so the birds of the air could come. It's still not a cedar. It's irony. But a mustard seed grows just as one day God's church will be universal in scope and ethnic membership. Hallelujah. And leaven is hidden in the dough yet makes a crazy amount of bread. We often miss that. There's three measures. What's three measures? Well, if you work it out, it's a crazy amount. It can feed more than 100 people. That's the point of it. And that exact amount of bread was used in significant times in Scripture which would have been in Matthew's mind. Matthew is always saying, As the scripture, let, let the scripture be fulfilled. So when the birth of Isaac was announced, and Abraham and Sarah had three visitors, one was the Lord and two angels. Remember that story, anyone? Okay. Sarah made this amount of bread. Oh, wow. 
for a whole crowd of people. And Gideon, when the angel appeared to him, he made this amount of bread. Because that, the story of Gideon, demonstrates how smallness overcomes the enemy. So all these would have been in mind in these in this story. And it emphasized it's that God is farting to fulfill his promise to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham. And the woman who hid the leaven did nothing more, it says, until it was all leavened. Passive mood, if you're into grammar. It means not what I actively did, but it just happened. God gives the growth. All you have to do is so, God gives the growth. And I believe this is going to, I'm going to give you six lessons now. It's all right, I won't, I won't do a whole conference on them. I could. I could do a whole conference on each of the six. But I'm just going to give you the headlines because I was asked to bring what's on my heart. So I'm an obedient man, a man under authority. And uh, so the, uh, so what is God saying to us needs restoring. And all of these things, as I say, you know. What is God saying to us today? Number one, the importance of disciple-making, because that's what Jesus was doing in this. Jesus was teaching his disciples. He'd already been, uh, he told stories to the crowd, but explained them to the disciples. That's what he did in this story, so that they understand the kingdom more. And right through, Matthew stresses, I did, I did a wonderful study for a year or two in Matthew's gospel. And so he'd always been, he'd already been training them through the Sermon on the Mount, later sending them out in mission two by two, testing their faith. And he sort of joked with them a bit, you little faith ones. <laughs> well, but that's okay. Little faith, better than no faith. Come on. <laughs> it's a seed. Okay. We sometimes think that was a rebuke, but it was also an encouragement. And this is how Jesus ends the teaching in Matthew 13 that we've read from. There are lots of stories in Matthew 13 about the kingdom. And then he says, at the end, he says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Which was overstating it a little bit. Okay. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe, that's scholar or someone who's learned something, who has been trained, and the word there is discipled, who has been discipled for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So what's Jesus saying there? Often, It's probably the most important part of the chapter, but we usually don't teach on it like we teach the rest. What's he saying? He's saying, you've heard me teach this. Who are you going to teach it to? Did you understand? That's what he's saying. Because if you've really understood, you'll share it with somebody else. Have you understood what I've been preaching so far? Who are you 
going to tell about the power of the kingdom to transform lives, even though any one individual contribution is tiny. Because people struggle with having a tiny contribution. So, I've told you the stories. Now, you bring out of your treasure all you've learned and share it with others. The whole point of learning is not to fill your mind with knowledge and be a brilliant theologian. The whole point is to practice it and do something about it. That's disciple-making. And this means, and, and it's the folk, and post-pandemic, we are learning that our focus has been almost entirely on how we run meetings rather than how we train disciples. Does that mean we shouldn't have meetings? No, it doesn't. Because as was brilliantly brought in that first contribution, when we can't, when that we are the temple of the living God and we're corporately the temple. Although our bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit, actually together we're the temple of God. So we don't neglect that. But we give as much, if not more, emphasis not to how everything, well everything's done in meetings, but how much is reproduced in people being able to share what they've learned and develop others. Believers and unbelievers. So, disciple making, therefore, is concerned with obedience, godly character, and being taught to obey. And discipleship is always for mission. It's never, sometimes discipleship courses, dare I say it, what's the matter? You said the same thing last week. Oh, I'm sure you said it better. Okay. Pardon? Yeah. Right. Discipleship is always for mission. It's not, I mean, there's been so much inward looking. I'm going on a discipleship course. Then I'm going on another discipleship course. Then I'm going on another one. No, it's for mission. And discipleship, did you say this as well? Discipleship is primarily corporate, not individual. Oh, we didn't get that one. All right. You see, a lot of Western teaching on discipleship is one-on-one training someone. Actually, Jesus hardly ever did. He took, one time he just took Peter aside from the others when he denied him three times and a little word. But generally speaking he taught them together. Because it's together that the issues come up. So yeah, when one of the disciples, it was Peter wasn't it, said to Jesus how many times must I forgive my brother? That was not an academic theological question. Someone had really been getting to him. Okay? And you only find that corporately. 
second thing. And he said, all right, we're... Leadership gifts, and I'm saying this to the whole church, leadership gifts are for equipping, not for performance. Okay? Therefore, leaders sow seeds in people so that they focus, so they grow. There's been a focus on doing things well, and of course, we don't want to do them badly. But if everything is perfect, it means you're not developing new people. (laughs) If the worship is always outstanding, then you're not bringing new people through. The preaching is always, I'm sure it is most of the time, absolutely superb. But last week particularly. But the... (laughs) You're not bringing new people through. If Ephesians 4.11 says leadership gifts of the five leadership ministries are to equip the church to do the ministry. If I'm an effective teacher, it's not people being impressed by my sermons, but if people can obey what we're teaching and put it into practice. In fact, Ephesians 4 about leadership doesn't start with leadership. It says to each one, Grace has been given. That's a gift of grace. It's not saving grace in that context. He's going on to talk about gifts. But to each one, a gift of grace has been given. I believe in this church, to each one of you, a gift of grace has been given. And the function of lead, so all are anointed. Old Testament anointing was God coming on special people at special times for special tasks. And sadly, many Christians still have an Old Testament view of anointing. New Testament is, I'll pour out my spirit on all. So, it means that for every woman and man in the church, you're saying, what are their gifts from God? How can they be grown, and because we need to grow in them, and demonstrated and released as much as possible. That's the function of leadership rather than performance. Be impressed with how they preach even. And that equipping is also for their daily lives in the world because, you know the concept of the church gathered and the church scattered, okay? Most of the week, the church is scattered. It's still the church. You know, it's totally unbiblical to say, we're going to church on Sunday. The church comes together on Sunday or during the week or whenever it is. The church is functioning all the time. When you're at work, the church is functioning there. And the kingdom is being extended there. And equipping is for that, not just for how people can prophesy on a Sunday morning, though that's wonderful. Okay, thirdly, a strong king, I've touched on this and it came through our worship brilliantly, A strong kingdom emphasis, not just church. Okay, Jesus kept repeating, this is what the kingdom's like. This is what the kingdom's like. This is what the kingdom's like. Because Jesus is reigning now until all his enemies are made with footstool of his feet. It's not that he will reign in the future. He is reigning. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. 
And then the gospel of the kingdom is preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come, which is all you need to know about the end times. All right? But the gospel of the kingdom, sadly, in the pandemic, all sorts of crazy stuff has gone on the internet about what is the, Jesus said, you will have wars and rumors of wars. You'll have pestilences. You'll have earthquakes. These are not the signs of the end. Anyway, I'll leave that one. The church and the kingdom are not the same. The church is the witness to the kingdom. The church is the agent of the kingdom, bringing it into the world today by prayer, by evangelism, by integrity of our lives, salt of the earth, by prophetic social action, good news to the poor, and by involvement in everyday life and culture. That's leaven in the flour. And the church as a community prophetically demonstrates the kingdom. So if people want to know what the future kingdom will be like, they look at the church now because that is prophetically demonstrating all the things the kingdom is to be. Where the poor are blessed. Where there's no ethnic division. Where there's no class division. You understand? We demonstrate the kingdom. And fourthly, and I'll run through these quickly. It's all right, don't worry. Breakthrough in our worldwide mission. Every local church takes responsibility for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Yeah? Every local church says, how are we serving our Jerusalem? Witnessing where we are. How are we planting churches in our region, Judea? How are we reaching those Close to us geographically, but different culturally. That's Samaritans. How are you doing that? And what are we contributing to the gospel going to the ends of the earth? And we know that, don't we? But I believe God's reinforcing it now. And it means that God is calling us to break through penetration into many cultures different ethnic groups, many nations, different ethnic groups, many social groups. The church should represent the place where it lives ethnically and socially. And we've got a long way, all of us, having a go at you, all of us have a long way to go before we do that. Yeah? But God's calling us to that. Rather than just doing great services, he's calling us to demonstrate that we bring together and have breakthrough in all those and the next generation. Okay. So we believe in a church which unites all nations as well as reaching all nations. And we're always willing to change church style to adapt to that vision. Church style is momentary. You can change it. You don't change foundational truth, you don't change the gospel, you change church style to adapt to the mission that God has given you. And we've got to learn to do that in this moment. You can work out what that means. So we adapt our churches, but not our gospel, to reach different social groups, which many of our churches, I speak myself as well, 
not doing that well. Different ethnicities. Praise God where we come from. We are doing that a bit better. About 40% non, non-British. And we adapt our worship. We're flexible in the way we do things in order to serve that breakthrough. And fifthly, and I wish I could spend more time on this, but I won't. Cross-centered, not glory-centered leadership style. That's the seed again. Jesus was saying, yeah, it's not a glory thing. The glory will come. It's a cross-centered thing, the kingdom. Sowing a seed, he says elsewhere, corn and wheat falls into the ground and dies. You see, the reference there is to the Reformation when up until that time, the church from the time of Constantine onwards had been glory-centered. You understand? Now, I'm not despising the beauty of cathedrals because I love going and seeing them. But we don't despise the faith of previous generations. But the focus was glory. And the focus, in fact, orthodox means literally correct glory. And so the Roman Catholic in, um, in those days, not today, but in those days and the Orthodox Church, so the leaders were glory-centered. They controlled politics, appointed kings. It was glory. When Martin Luther came, as well as justification by faith, what he gave us was leadership. He said it's got to be cross-centered leadership not glory-centered leadership, which is servanthood, which is dying, which is laying down your lives for those you're serving. That's what leaders do. Many of the parts of the world I work in, it's the leaders get put in prison. Okay? I could tell you story after story where we're working in persecuted church we've got so much now part of our family in the persecuted church and leadership does that but God has shown during this season of pandemic but not just through the pandemic sadly it's been a season as well of big names having fallen Now, that's a huge challenge to all of us. You may have read about it. Some of the people we admired, we learned a lot from. God's saying, celebrity culture is over for the church. You understand? And yet we love it, don't we? And we crowd after it. We crowd after glory, but leadership is cross-centered. The glory will come, and as you sow seeds, the whole, all the nations will be affected. Your your ministry will be ever so fruitful, but it's cross-centered. That's the style, not glory. You understand? So the theology of glory 
has characterised the celebrity culture and consumerism of much Christian leadership. Churches. Yes, you honour leaders, but there's been so much emphasis on that, you forget that 1 Corinthians 12 says, those that in the world have least honour are those that give greater honour in the church. Is that what we do? And finally, strong corporate prayer. Again, it's almost the hardest thing to do now in busy 21st century lives. Have you noticed that? And prayer is sowing seeds of faith before God. You pray in faith. I love praying the Lord's Prayer this morning. You're dead right at that point and singing that song. Even ended up with a theme I've just touched on. Yours is the glory. Yeah. But we sow seeds of faith. And corporate prayer. I mean, we all know this. Everyone believes in corporate prayer, yeah? response to that <laughs> but somehow it's the hardest thing to fit into our Christian schedules now you have to be fle- you have to be flexible you have to do it in different ways you have to be creative different ways of doing it and the Lord's prayer is corporate it is not my father in heaven it's our father in heaven Whenever you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are being an intercessor on behalf of others. Not just for you. Prayer acknowledges our dependence on God in a way that planning and strategy do not. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And through prayer is the sea is the sort of soil for prophetic input and prophetic is like seeds it comes and demonstrates what is to be and so for my own ministry and I'll close with this sorry I've gone on too long often said nowadays. Okay. So, I know in my own experience that God spoke to me in 1994 before I launched the Benin Initiative because that speaking came later, 95. In 94, God said, with a visiting prophet to Bedford, picked me out, a whole crowd of leaders, said one day your ministry will impact the Muslim world. I'd had no thought of that at all. So I knew that would start in the year 2000, I remember. I won't go into how I knew that. So I started, Silla and I travelled to one or two places where we said, how are we going to do that? 
I was asked at a church recently, what was your strategy to reach the Muslim world? I didn't have one. I had obedience to a prophetic word. And so we just visited two couples who were from New Frontiers churches working not with us, but working in the Muslim world. We visited them both. That's all we did to start with. Then we gathered a few. Now, I don't know how, but there are churches all over the place. I've just had an email yesterday, and WhatsApp yesterday, more churches, more churches. I'm not even involved in it now, except to encourage and so on. But more has happened after I stopped getting involved than while I was involved. But that's what sowing seeds means. I don't know. I just I see a prophetic seed meant that now so many churches, so, and most of them can't talk about publicly. So many. In countries that get them to the news for other things. Understand? So a seed. Remember when we launched the Midlands Initiative and God said, 50 churches in the Midlands. I didn't know what to do. And he said to me, what did Paul do? So, well, he gathered people in the Hall of Tyrannus and they plant, and churches went, grew up all over Asia Minor. Uh, you know, that's what happened. So, and that happened. I don't know how. We just gathered people. I didn't know anyone would come, but they did. Because a prophetic seed is sown. I'll be quiet now. I realize my time's gone. Five minutes ago, ten minutes ago. But I hope you're getting the point. This is what God is calling us to today. And for your next ten years, work on those. You'll be okay. And believe for prophetic seeds to keep coming as well. Jesus name Lord I pray for this church Lord you've used it in the past to do things far more than this church was in numerical terms just a small church in those days and yet we trained here in Solihull loads of people and loads of churches got planted thank you Lord that was a seed now Lord do it again at a greater extent. Father, I pray, let this church be effective in Jerusalem. Let it grow here. Let it be effective in planting churches around this area. Let it become a base to do that again in a different way. Let them reach their Samaria, Lord, had cultures and classes that are not reaching to them, I pray. Do it, Lord, in this next period. Let them sow seeds. You don't have to have a complete strategy for it. We sow seeds. Keep them flexible. Father, I pray.
and let them have impact to the ends of the earth. Lord, both in serving churches in other places and also sending a few people to the ends of the earth. May it happen from here in this next phase. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.